Mervyn Hanley will inspire Mervyn Hanley will empower A voice powerful beyond measure He will keep us strong under pressure Touching the hearts and souls of family You will hear his voice through your tragedy Television online and overseas Tune in to Mervyn Hanley Good evening. It's Monday, 8th February, and let me welcome you to the Blue Table with Mervyn Henley. Of course, it's a new format, and what we have done, we have combined it all. News, analysis, interviews, and this will be Monday to Friday, 8 p.m. Caribbean time and 7 p.m. Eastern. Now, I believe that you will appreciate our new format, and I make a commitment to you that I will be a voice on all issues. I will try my very best and you can hold me accountable, hold my feet to the fire. Now, please remember, you can download the podcast app. It's pretty simple. And then search for The Blue Table with Mervyn Henley and listen to the different episodes. Of course, this anchor link will be posted nightly to our Facebook page. That's The Blue Table with Mervyn Henley. Or I will send it to my WhatsApp broadcast list. If you do not have me on that list and you'd like to be a part of the WhatsApp broadcast news and for whatever information we have to send out, you can send me a message on WhatsApp at 1869-667-7443. And you won't miss a beat when it comes to news and what we have to offer at the Blue Table. Now, we have some stories to get to, but let's hear from the Development Bank of St. Kitts and Nevis. They have supported the Blue Table from the beginning. They have sponsored our news, THG News Tonight. So I want to give the Development Bank of St. Kitts and Nevis a big shout out. And to let you know how much we appreciate you and this great working relationship. Now, I encourage everyone to establish a relationship with this great financial institution. Let's hear from them. And we'll be right back with some news and my exclusive interview with Dr. Leonard Richardson, who is from the Caribbean, but is on the front line in America, serving as one of our greatest doctors at the John Hopkins Hospital, especially in these times of covid so we will be right back with more right here at the Blue Table. Welcome to the Customer Support Portal, where we have made it easier for you to contact us. It starts with your question, email, a message, phone call, or a search on our website. Our CSP provides prompt and efficient solutions to your problems. We pride ourselves on treating our clients responsibly and ensuring your information is kept safe. Log on to www.sknd.net and send us a ticket or email us at customersupport at sknd.com. You may also call us directly at 869-465-2288 extension 1322 or 954-353-1003. Mervyn Hanley will inspire! Mervyn Hanley will empower! A voice powerful beyond measure! He will keep us strong under pressure! Touching the hearts and souls of family! You will hear his voice through your tragedy! Television online and overseas! Tune in to Mervyn Hanley! So let us begin with news from St. Vincent and the Grenadines. Prime Minister Ralph Gonzalez says that he will take the Russian-developed Sputnik COVID-19 vaccine on Tuesday. Gonzalez made the announcement while speaking on local radio stations there on Sunday. Just three days after telling Parliament, he was given a prayerful consideration and would have made a decision the following day. I have decided that on Tuesday that I am going to take the Sputnik, the Russian vaccine. I decided that I am going to do it. I got up on Friday morning saying yes 
Gonzalez said in an interview on WeFM. He noted that the country has received 20 doses of the Sputnik vaccine. He added that infectious disease specialist Dr. Gerald Thompson, a former Minister of Science and Technology, as well as Medical Officer of Health, Dr. Duncan, and a couple of other persons in St. Vincent and the Grenadines, had already received the Sputnik jab. But there are so many persons who are a little wary of the vaccines that I finally decided that, look, if I take it, persons would probably have greater confidence in vaccine taken because the anti-vaxxers have been making quite an advance on YouTube and on social media. And I've seen some statistics coming out of Britain and a couple places, Gonzalez said. I've seen some responses from a limited survey done in Barbados and some commentaries by some people who are in public health in the region. And I thought that maybe if I take it and people see, well, the comrade took it and not just vaccines in general, but certainly this COVID vaccine and particularly the Sputnik, Gonzalez said. On Thursday, Gonzalez 74 told lawmakers that his instinct was not to take the vaccine because he did not want to appear to be jumping the queue. Although, because of his age, he would be among persons who may be considered those who should take the vaccine. Good for you, Ralph Gonzalez. Jab, jab. It was a sight to behold on Anguilla as many residents got vaccinated and the social media was abuzz as many captured the moment of them being vaccinated and shared for the world to see. The first batch of 8,000 doses of the vaccine to combat the coronavirus, which causes COVID-19 disease, arrived on Anguilla last Thursday. In a statement last week, Premier Webster said the following, I'm encouraging all Anguillians and residents of Anguilla, other than those under 18 years and pregnant women, to register and to take the vaccine. That is necessary to preserve the health of our people, get our people back to work, and to save our economy. Our hard-working health, surveillance, border control teams, and the Royal Anguilla Police Force have kept us safe up to this point. It is now time for all of us to do our part. He went on to thank the governor's office and the government of the United Kingdom for procuring the vaccine and sending it to Angola. Let's talk more on this for a few minutes with the Honorable Hayden Hughes. He's the Minister of Tourism on Angola, amongst other portfolios. So, Honorable, welcome to my program. I saw that you got jabbed on Friday. How was that? And are you experiencing any post-jab symptoms? Thank you very much for having me. And no, I... Um I have not suffered any symptoms whatsoever. I know it is expected that you will have certain symptoms such as fever, shivers, and the like. But I have suffered no ill effects from being vaccinated on Friday. And I, I want a record to show that I was the number three person to be vaccinated following the Honorable Premier, Dr. Ellis Lorenzo Webster, and Her Excellency the Governor. So I, I got it early, and I think that I have been a good test subject. And um, I'm excited. I'm excited about the prospects of mm -hmm. travel, inward travel, and, and being able to travel once again. I, w I will get to that. But um, folks had to register to get vaccinated. Is that correct? Yeah, that is correct. Um, we're trying to get people to register as much as possible so we can find you, so we can schedule you. Um, but if you're not registered, you can also get vaccinated. Do you have any idea how many residents got jabbed so far? On Friday, yes, at least? Said. Approximately 70 persons got vaccinated on Friday, even though that was not the expected outcome. We expected just to um, jab the members of parliament and a few social um, media personalities, but able to jab the former premier, Mr. Victor Banks. We were able to um, jab um, the former minister of health, Mr. Edison Beard, 
and a number of other persons who have been very um very active on social media i must applaud the pr blitz by your government and not only your government by the people of angola who are making an exerted effort to encourage others to take the vaccine obviously there are those who are not bought into the idea uh, how do you deal with something like this? You said 70, about 70 on Friday. You have a population of 11,000, 12,000 people. So how do you deal with um, with this situation? Well, we have a population of around 15,000 15. people. And our goal, our goal is to get to 12,700 um, vaccinations mm -hmm. um, deployed. Um, we, we have been trying to educate the people as much as possible, asking them to look for the reputable sources of information. Even after you're registered and you go to get your jab, um, you ask a series of questions. They, they go over your health profile to ensure that nothing has been missed during the registration process. So it's all about education, 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 and allowing people to understand what this means to Anguilla, because this is a, an opportunity for us as a country. Honorable Hughes, of course, um, throughout the Caribbean and throughout the world, there is an issue with illegal immigration. Um, what about those persons? How do they come forward? I, I know that they may be reluctant to come forward to, to be vaccinated if, they're not, um, if their documents are not right on the island. Well, we don't have a real issue of illegal immigration, but the Permanent Secretary and the Minister of Health have said it clear. Whoever you are, um, whether you're illegal or illegal, documented or undocumented, you too can be um, can be vaccinated because we need to protect the nation. We need to protect everyone in Anguilla, and by so doing, we'll be able to um, ensure that we have herd immunity, so that we can really and truly open our borders without any protocols or any sanctions whatsoever. And that leads me to this question: So you take the next vaccine in about two or three weeks, correct? And um, yeah. after this is done, more folks are vaccinated. What's next for Angola? Do you plan to open up more? Well, that's the plan. Relax your protocols, as you said. What about uh, well, quarantine? The plan is once we have gotten to that threshold of 75% um, vaccination penetration, then that the plan is to open our borders and we get back to a sense of normalcy and we can have a, 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 an economy that, um, we, as you know, is reliant on tourism, but at the same time, uh, relax the protocols that is uh, related to quarantine and the like. And people can have a, a freedom of movement in and out of the country without having any restrictions. You mentioned the threshold. Yes, I understand that. Um, is there a time frame for that you're looking at? Well, we believe um, it's that we have an ambitious figure our, um, right now. The ambitious figure is around 500 a day. Um, do the calculation, do the math, and, and that will determine when and we'll be completed. But we will also have that um, on our website, beatcovid19.ai. Persons can see how many people have been vaccinated, how many of the vaccinations have been used. Uh, we're going to have um, a tremendous amount of transparency as it relates to this, and hopefully we'll be able to utilize all of the vaccinations that have been deployed to us. Just out of curiosity, as we wrap this up, what's the average hotel occupancy rate on the island right now? Well, right now the occupancies are very low. We had a tremendous occupancy during the festive period. Um, we are seeing a tremendous amount of bookings right now, given the fact that many of the countries around us are closing, in particular St. Bart's. Um, we've seen a tremendous amount of room nights in the hundreds that are booked for February and March of this year. Um, we don't really keep average occupancies um, as a stat, but I can tell you that um, the numbers are trending upwards now that um, it's such a challenge in our other jurisdictions and the fact that Angola is COVID-free. And I know this conversation mainly is about COVID, but as you mentioned, the low occupancy rate, I can imagine the 
unemployment um, is that a, is yes. that an high yes. as as other countries? How are you dealing with that with um, the unemployed at home? Is your is there a, um, the government a stimulus per se, or how do you deal with that? Well, the unemployment right now in Angola is at record highs. It's record high unemployment. There's a lot mm-hmm. of underemployment as well, and we are dealing with it by granting persons who are unemployed or underemployed a stipend, a monthly stipend, um, dispersed by the Ministry of Social Development. Mm-hmm. As well, we're giving people reprieves um, as it relates to the utility, the utility bills, and the bank has given a, a holiday. And uh, so all of these combined, we consider them to be a, a not stimulus per se, but some easement uh, to the general person on the street. Um, we hope to get back to some sort of normalcy in the middle part of this year. So we are, we are, we are battling down. Everybody understands what we are faced with. And I think that we have a tremendous amount of buy-in and we can possibly become the first country to be open without any restrictions. Honorable Hayden Hughes, I want to thank you for your time. I have your fellow Angolian, Dr. Leonard Richardson. He's coming up later in the program and there is so much I know that we can learn from him. Thank you so much. Honorable Hayden Hughes thank of Angola. Thank you very much, sir. Mm-hmm. Let us now take a look at news from St. Lucia. The Ministry of Health and Wellness on Sunday said it received confirmation from the Ezra Long Lab of 214 new cases of COVID-19. It said the 214 confirmed cases came from a batch of 701 tests of samples taken during the period of January 27th to January 29th, 2021. The ministry also announced one new COVID-19-related death, bringing the current total to 19. According to the ministry's release, Friday, February 5th, A total of 571 tests were conducted with 168 positive samples. On Saturday, February 6, a total of 130 tests were conducted with 46 positive samples. These individuals were seen at the various respiratory clinics where they were assessed and tested for COVID-19. As per existing COVID-19 testing protocols, each individual was placed in home quarantine by healthcare practitioners while awaiting the return of the COVID-19 test results. Arrangements have since been made to place these individuals in isolation. The contact tracing team is undertaking investigations to identify the contacts of these confirmed cases. Confirmation was also received yesterday of the recovery of 42 individuals bringing the total number of active cases currently in St. Lucia to 1,091. Two of the active cases are in critical care at the respiratory hospital, and all of the others are presently stable. The new cases now bring the total number of cases diagnosed in the country to 2,027. The Ministry of Health also reports one new COVID-19-related death, bringing the total number of deaths in the country to 19. Death number 19 is a 57-year-old male from the Castries district with multiple underlying illnesses. He was admitted on January 22nd and was in critical care when he passed away on February 26th. Now, on tomorrow night's program, I will spend some more time on St. Lucia and its leadership because the way they're handling this is just Nuts. It's just absolutely crazy. And so it will not take me just about a two minutes read like I just did. I think it is important for people to to understand what is going on and what is not taking place. Then you will understand the nightmare that is taking place on St. Lucia. And that's our news on COVID tonight. The reports are just startling. And to help us make sense of all this, I will now speak to Dr. Leonard Richardson. He is not just a doctor, he is a one of a kind. 
and he's from the Caribbean island, he will tell you, Sinkitz, Nevis, and Anguilla. His practice is at the John Hopkins Hospital and a faculty at the John Hopkins University School of Medicine. Good evening to you, Doc. How are you doing this evening? Good evening, Mr. Handy. It's a pleasure speaking to you today, and um, congratulations on the Blue Table. Thank you so much. Uh, Doc, at the top of the show, I did give brief details about you, but surely you will do a better job than I can in telling the audience just a, a brief description of yourself. Ah, brief description of myself. Uh, Your professional career, yes. <laughs> uh, let's see. Uh, I grew up in uh, uh, St. Kitts and Nevis. I was uh, born in Anguilla, so I claim uh, both countries. Mm-hmm. Uh, I immigrated to the United States. Um, I studied uh pre-med in New York at Adelphi University, went to medical school at Howard University, uh, joined the Air Force, uh, became a flight surgeon, um, and uh, served in the United States military. Um, I also did an internal medicine residency at uh, Michigan State University, and uh, then moved to um, Maryland, where I worked as a hospitalist critical care unit doctor. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I uh, started my own practice and got a chance to, to do outpatient medicine. So I did that for a while, um, you know, grew a couple practices, and then I sort of missed the hospital medicine and yes. uh, got back into the, the hospitalist uh, world. Uh, when this pandemic hit, so um, that that allowed me to to get involved in the the frontline efforts of fighting this pandemic. As we learned about this this novel virus, this this new thing, and and what needed to be done to try to curb it. So I got a chance uh, to 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 be at the front. Um, I got a chance to be part of that surge as we met it head on mm-hmm. and uh, I've, I've earned a, a little bit of experience, I think, in the process. And the, the reason why I asked you to give an introduction of yourself, that's because I want people to understand, our listeners to to understand that who I'm speaking to tonight um, has the uh, firsthand experience of um, what we are going through right now as far as this uh, pandemic is concerned. Um, when we have in the United States over 400,000 deaths and millions are sick from this virus, Doc, it, this, is, um, this is just serious. And it's, I don't want to say crazy, but it's just a nightmare on all of us. And we thank you for your service. We thank you for what you're doing, you and your team. You're on the front line and we just want you to keep safe. But let's get right to um, my question for you. My questions for you tonight. Have you taken, well, I would want to think so, but have you taken the vaccine? And if so, um, have you gotten both shots? Yes. Um, being on the front line, the uh, United States and has mandated uh, a sort of priority list, um, whether you're 1A, 1B, 1C, mm-hmm. uh, and, and so forth, and they give you a priority based on that. So being in the ICU and in the field hospital dealing primarily with COVID patients, 
various stages of the disease, we are exposed uh, quite a lot. So we use a lot of personal protective equipment. We use the uh, tapper, uh, but we were the ones who were considered 1A prime and uh, we were offered the vaccine early. Okay. Uh, so you yes. So you've taken both shots. Yes, I had the uh, Pfizer vaccine. I got that in December. Both shots. Okay. Is there a reason why it was the Pfizer and not the other one, or is it just um, a matter of you know what wasn't what was on hand at the time? Um, it was uh, more or less what was available. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a uh, mRNA virus. It's highly effective. Um, in generating an antibody response, and the FDA uh, was uh, pretty adamant on giving it an emergency use authorization. So um, that went out to the providers, and um, most of us got that one because it was the one that was ready to go. We have heard so much misinformation about the vaccines. Um, Sometimes I admit it appears that the misinformation overshadows the truth. Now, what do you say to the to the skeptics, and believe me, there are many uh, who are reluctant on taking the vaccine. Wow, that's a that's a loaded question um, because uh, skepticism uh, or vaccine hesitancy or distrust that uh, folks have for the vaccine comes from so many different places. Mm-hmm. Um, one of, one of the places is obviously the the misinformation um, that's just permeating the airways. Um, There are a lot of myths out there. I've heard everything from the mark of the beast to this uh, vaccine integrating with your DNA and changing you Mm -hmm. to uh, Bill Gates trying to take over the world to extermination of black children and and, and, and so forth. So I've I've heard it. Um, it, It's a lot of misinformation. It's a lot of conspiracy theories. Um, which have no basis in reality. Uh, so, uh, you know, the best way to to fight that is through education. Um, you know, that's that's one uh, um, reason why there's uh, vaccine hesitancy or skepticism, mm-hmm. yes. misinformation. But then you have to also think of um, the unique. Um, uh, understanding of let's say the, the the black and brown population in the united states and in the west indian population there's a certain uh, mistrust or distrust of the system and uh, to understand why uh, that is you have to understand the history so my take on that is um, you have to first discuss uh, with the uh, patient population. Yes. Why they have the mistrust? You know, you discuss the. Uh, yes, we understand the Tuskegee um, experiments. We understand that uh, forced sterilization occurred. We understand that uh, Henrietta Lacks uh, was was taken advantage of, and and herself have been sold for billions of dollars around the world without mm-hmm. compensation mm-hmm. to her family. You know, uh, there's there's of course the the unconscious bias that occurs within our field, uh, which then causes healthcare disparity and inequities in healthcare itself and um, technology and access to care. So it is a a multifactorial um, issue. Uh, 
Um, hmm. And on top of that, you know, um, uh, a climate of mistrust yes. from the top, where uh, it's it's no secret that the former president uh, said many untruths. So when somebody like that says uh, Operation Warp Speed, it's uh, we're going to do that. It, 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 this is a situation where people don't trust it. Yes. So you have to start with um, just just understanding the many social determinants of care and uh, that, that uh, people need to be um, aware that barriers exist. And, and we have to try to bridge that gap um, between the provider and the recipients of care. And we have to let them know that we're listening to them, you have to listen to the community because if they trust you and you have a good rapport mm-hmm. with the community, um, um, that's the way to start the conversation about what the vaccine is, and you can start the education. Because I can tell you, um, if you come in solely with academia and research, uh, the patient population will. Uh, sort of uh, be isolated. Yes. Um, they they uh, won't really trust you because they have more pressing needs. Some people are more concerned about the the violence in their community. They're, mm. they're more concerned with trash pickup. They're not as concerned with um, their uh, diabetes or hypertension or coronary artery disease, which could make um, COVID worse which is one of the reasons why they're dying from COVID at an alarming rate um, or or, are getting sick at a a higher rate from the general population. So um, all this Mm -hmm. has to be taken into account uh, from somebody who they trust, a trusted physician, um, you know, who is in the real world setting and and, and participating in the solution of trying to get these uh, patients educated and treated and uh, taking the preventive measures like taking the vaccine. And with the way things are going right now, and this is just my uh, personal opinion on this, um, I am very happy that we have a new president because, well, you briefly mentioned the former president, but I believe that he 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 was the, the that um, what must I say? How must I say this? He was that wedge between the people and getting the the vaccines out there and um, getting things under control, getting this pandemic, at least in the United States, under control. And while we're on presidents, um, Joe Biden, he what do you think about uh, his response to COVID-19 thus far? He has announced that by the end of summer and early fall, that his administration uh, will ensure that there are an additional 300 million vaccines available. Now, this is in addition to the uh, 100 million in his first 90 days in office that he has promised. Do you think that this is realistic? Um, yeah, I, I think it's realistic. Uh, he's, he's outlined an agenda um, that is uh, optimistic mm-hmm. and it's aggressive. I, I think it's it's necessary. Um He's, he's uh, um, introduced the or activated the Defense uh, Production Act, 
and the DPT, the DPA Act usually accelerates the, the manufacturing of important medical equipment and vaccines. So that's a, a unique and necessary tool that's that's going to be needed. Um, uh, one of the things that's also um, important that um, he's done is he's sort of empowered the, the vaccine companies to, to be more aggressive. And, and what some of them have done is outsourced the ability to, to manufacture more vaccine. Mm-hmm. So um, I know, uh, for instance, uh, Pfizer plans to outsource um, to a 200-strong network of contractors, um, and, and they include uh, people in the United States and also outside of the United States. I think um, there's a, a, a place in Belgium that's going to be helping to, to make vaccine as they ramp up. Mm-hmm. I know Moderna aims to uh, make um, about a billion COVID-19 shots because remember, they're also supplying the world, not just the United States. Um, and they're also um, trying to maintain those vaccines that they are making right now that they have to still make up there. They have a current uh, agenda of 1.5 billion doses of, of sterile medications each year. So they still have to maintain that and ramp up the necessary doses of vaccine. So I, I think it's doable, but I, I think we need to emphasize that uh, you're going to need the people. You're going to need those folks who are going to be out there giving the shots. Yes. And um, you got to ramp up everybody. You need um, the docs, the nurses, the nursing students, the med students, the pharmacists. You know, um, you need uh, a decent distribution uh, mechanism. Um, you need uh, mac, uh, mass vaccination centers. And I know here in Maryland, for instance, the, they're opening up the uh, stadiums, the, the Oriole Stadium. Oh, wow. Uh, they, they have expanded the role of the convention center to include um, uh, vaccines, and they've opened a number of sites in various counties. And that's uh, going, that's across the United States. But not only that, but also um, they're activating mobile units that can go into places that are less accessible. So um, with all that, it is definitely possible to um, get all those vaccines in arms, is, is my thought. But, you know, it has to be, be you have to stay with the agenda that yes. he has planned. Tell you what, uh, let's take a break and we'll be right back with more from Dr. Richardson. Mervyn Hanley will inspire. Mervyn Hanley will empower. A voice powerful beyond measure. He will keep us strong under pressure. Touching the hearts and souls of family. You will hear his voice through your tragedy. Television online and overseas. Tune in to Mervyn Hanley. And we're back and I am Mervyn Henley and we're speaking to Dr. Lenny Richardson of the John Hopkins Hospital and the faculty at the John Hopkins University School of Medicine. And we're speaking, obviously, of the most obvious topic, which is uh, COVID. Um, Doc, let me ask you, you are from the islands. Some countries are not doing so good at all in handling this pandemic. And islands such as St. Kitts and Nevis and Anguilla thus far, the governments and health professionals I can say for sure they're doing an excellent job. 
Now, but what do you say to the countries who are who are struggling in containing this virus? I, I agree with you. Um, St. Kitts uh, is, is doing an outstanding job. I know uh, Dr. Laws. Uh, she's a classmate of mine. I know mm-hmm. Dr. Cameron Wilkinson. Um, and Anguilla is also doing a phenomenal job. Dr. Byron is, is, the, um, is, is leading that health team over there in Anguilla. Um, and they're doing an outstanding job along with the healthcare team and not only the healthcare team but the folks that are involved in um just the the, the border protection yes. the immigration guys the customs guys um those involved in, in, in civil protection the police um the hospitality folks uh, and those involved in transportation i mean it's 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 a it's a group effort um and they're doing a phenomenal job What's, what, what they're doing is they have really mastered the, the art of um, mitigation. Uh, they have mastered uh, the, the education of the, of, of the populace. They yes. have managed to, to uh, maintain some economic viability. Uh, the testing that they're doing, uh, I think they do, a, you have to have a three to five day test prior to arrival. Um, if you're going to be a guest coming in, uh, you're quarantined and then we test at day four and at day 10. And then the, the hotel is in the bubble. So you're quarantined in the hotel and separated from the population. And then there's protocol that you can be released after 14 days and, and so forth. And, you know, by protecting the community with travel bans and, and, and curfews if necessary, uh, that is a necessary evil. The only people who may be doing better than that are those folks over in the Pacific Islands. Mm-hmm. Um, they have shut down completely. Um, you know, Nauru and uh, Palau and, and what's the other one, Tonga. I mean, those, those Pacific Islanders, they just lock their borders altogether and they have no spread of COVID. But again, that comes with its own issues. So I think those guys down there have done a phenomenal job. So I just wanted to, to you know, put that out there first. Those that are not doing as, uh, as well, um, I think there's always room for, for growth and for learning. And you can always go back to serious mitigation efforts. I know that uh, some travel uh, bans have been put in place. I know some curfews have been put in place and lockdowns. Uh, they're doing contact tracing. Uh, they're they're uh, isolating the the ill, and you know they're also um, treating uh, who they have to treat. So um, lessons learned. They they're all they need to do is continue to be aggressive and recognize that this uh, virus is real. Um, and, you know, I think we'll get through it. The President Joe Biden, he has uh, mandated a mask for federal offices. Um, do you think masks should be mandated for all? Well, should masks be mandated for all? First, I think we need to... Um, really have a good robust surveillance type of 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 system um if you have 
good surveillance, um, you're testing folks, and you have evidence of no community spread, then I don't think you need to mandate mask wearing at that time because mm-hmm. the mitigation efforts are working. Um, of course, out of an abundance of caution, you still have to be vigilant and continue to test and continue to um, be aware of your surroundings. Maintain social distancing, sneeze in your elbow, um, cover, you know, sneeze in your elbow and cough in your elbow as well. Um, but if community spread is, um, is, is, is evident, then there's absolutely no question. Masks should be mandated. Okay. You as a good doctor, you see these uh, COVID patients every day, I am sure, uh, whether in the hospital room or in the ICU. We have seen in red reports where um, hospitals are out of beds and no more uh, ICU units available. How does a doctor or a hospital uh, make that decision on which patient to attend to? I know that we are living in not the normal times, so your profession, your profession must be a tough one right now in, in making decisions like this. Um, yeah, speaking of tough times, it, 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 these are tough times. And, um, you know, I just want to encourage those healthcare providers out there to just continue to stay vigilant. And the reason why I say that is um, there's a tremendous demand and uh burden being put on the healthcare providers right now. Not only uh, do we have to be uh, the physicians and physician assistants and nurse practitioners and so forth, but we also have to be counselors uh, because there's a shortage of psychiatrists and psychologists there. We have to be educators because there's so there's so many questions that uh, we have to um, educate families and, 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 and they worried well, those, those patients that are not sick but worried. Um, we have to comfort those patients who are dying in the hospital mm-hmm. and there's no family around. We have to, you, you know, be their, their family. Um, and we have to sort of uh, console our own families and let them know that we're okay. So a lot of, and, and oh, and let's not forget, we also become patients. Yes. We also get sick and, and we die. So so there's a lot of, of, of stress, post-traumatic stress disorder, uh, depression, um, and we have to su- support each other. Um, so so when you mention tough times, I say, yeah, this is, these mm-hmm. are trying times. Uh, so, but in terms of how we make these decisions, um, let me let me sort of explain how how triage works, and I'll, I'll sort of give you um, an idea from a military perspective, since I I am a military officer, and also uh, from the civilian perspective, and and, mm-hmm. and sort of show you how it, it's it's evolved. So triage is sort of a dynamic process, meaning you're constantly um, trying to to make changes depending on, on what you see before you and you sort of you sort casualties and you have to identify the priority of treatment and evacuation of the wounded giving the limitations of whatever situation you're you're dealing with um, you have to look at the mission and you have to look at the available resources mm-hmm. so in military you're looking at how much time you have, how much equipment you have, your supplies, your personnel, and uh, can this person be evacuated safely? 
Um, the goal in the military is to treat the casualty. You don't want to get any more casualties, so you want to prevent additional casualties, and then you want to um, complete the mission. So that that's the goal in the military um, sort of in a combat situation. Now, in the civilian uh, situation, um, uh, well, first let me just mention that in combat situation, the 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 most um, common cause of illness is hemorrhage. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's what you're trying to treat. In the civilian world, the, the most common cause for triage is a some sort of unintentional injury. So um, you sort of deal with the 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 sickest mm-hmm. or, or most critical first. Uh, so you want to go into the resuscitation, and, and then you go with who is who is emergent, yes, uh, who is a little less critical, and then urgent and less urgent, and those that are not urgent, and you sort of uh, triage it that way. With COVID, things change because now you you have to sort of build a hybrid. Um, it's no longer unintentional injury that's the leading cause of death. It's now COVID. COVID is now the leading cause of death. Right. So how do you you uh, um, triage this? First, you want to try to um, avoid spread. So you may set up a tent outside of the emergency room. The object is to separate these patients from the rest of the um, patient population. Um, you want to um, continue to treat and save as many lives as possible. Yes. And I, I emphasize that because this is um, called the the utilitarian model, and you and some folks um, say that uh, it, that that we try we are setting up death panels. Mm-hmm. So we the, the goal is complete the complete opposite. We're not setting up death panels. We're trying to save as many lives as possible. Um, and how do we do that? Uh, we try to be ethical. We try to be fair. Um, you know, fidelity is important. Veracity is important. Um, and we have to know the limitations, know what our resources are, know the size of the incident, i.e., you know, how, how many patients are coming in? Um, what What is the projected um case positivity rate so that mm-hmm. we kind of get an idea of what's happening um, and then we can sort of, of, of make decisions do we need a surge capacity um, and and that's when you say okay do we need to extend the field hospital you need to know um, your, your, your personnel how many doctors how many nurses do you have how many beds because the object is to limit the resource strain on the hospital yeah. Uh, so you have to weigh the individual needs of the uh, patient against the individual needs of the the population as a whole, and that's where it it can get tricky because now you have to uh, make that decision. You have to weigh um, what's more important. In other words, am I going to use all the resources we have on one person? Or I'm going to look at the um, life expectancy of this person and, um, you know, how much can they contribute to society? If this person's 92 and I have a, a 
32-year-old and they both um, need that respirator, you kind of have to make these harsh um, decisions. Yes. Um, and, and, and one more thing, though. What would you do if um, it's, it's, it's a, and, and this is becoming more real, if it's a VIP or a celebrity, mm-hmm. um, you know, and, and your hospital is, is full. Is it justifiable? Because this, is it morally justifiable if it's a, a VIP or a celebrity who can then um, spread uh, the, the, the importance of mitigation? Mm-hmm. Or is it unethical? Because, you know, this is somebody who, quote unquote, jumped the line. So um, my take on that, it depends on the available resources. So if if you have enough resources to treat that person, then yes. But if not, then you have to uh, continue to um, weigh the individual needs with the population as a whole. And on that note, we will take a break and we'll be right back with much more and this discussion, I am so in tune with it, and I'm sure that uh, the audiences as well will be right back. Mervyn Hanley will inspire. Mervyn Hanley will empower. A voice powerful beyond measure. He will keep us strong under pressure. Touching the hearts and souls of family. You will hear his voice to your tragedy. Television online and overseas. Tune in to Mervyn Hanley. Okay, Dr. Lenny Richardson, we are speaking with him at the Blue Table with Mervyn Hanley. And let me ask you, as we wrap up soon, um, when do you think we can expect some kind of normalcy? Well, let's define normalcy. I don't think it's going to be back to what we thought normal was. I think we're going to have a new normal, a normal, a new normal with uh, more vigilance, more surveillance, um, introduction of booster vaccines, and so forth, because it, it depends on a number of things. It depends on um, uh, how much vaccine is available. It depends mm-hmm. on how many variants uh, we have. It depends on the virility of the the um, new variants, because this thing is continually evolving. This virus, this virus continues to evolve. So, um, you know, we it, it's going to be sort of integrated into our life. But I, I think maybe by fall. Uh, we'll sort of be getting into a, a new normal. There, okay, fall. This is January, no, uh, don't, February don't now. Hold me to that now. <laughs> I know. know <laughs> that is so true. With this, you never know. Every day, it is something different. Now, uh, there were two CDC reports I would like to touch on quickly. Um, in one report on December the second, they said that, and I quote: "Local public health authorities determine." and establish the quarantine options for their jurisdictions. The CDC currently recommends a quarantine period of 14 days. However, based on local circumstances and resources, the following options to shorten quarantine are acceptable alternatives. Quarantine can end after day 10 without testing, and if no symptoms have reported during daily monitoring. With this strategy, residual post-quarantine transmission risk is estimated to be about 1% with an upper limit of about 10%. Now, when diagnostic tests, uh, resources are sufficient and available, uh, then quarantine can end after day 7. If a diagnostic specimen tests negative, and if no symptoms were reported during the daily monitoring, the specimen may be collected and tested within 48 hours 
before the time of planned quarantine discontinuation. Example in anticipation of testing delays, but quarantine cannot be discontinued earlier than after seven days. Now, with this strategy, with this strategy the residual post-quarantine transmission risk is estimated to be about 5% with an upper limit of about 12%. In both cases, additional criteria, example continued symptoms monitoring and masking through day 14, must be met and are outlined in the full text. Now, your thoughts on these guidelines and, and then in a few days after you give me your thoughts, in a few days, um, a few days ago, rather, there were there was a report on schools. And let me just read a portion of that for you. The CDC team reviewed data from studies in the United States and abroad and found the experience in schools differed from nursing homes and high density work sites where rapid spread has occurred. The preponderance of available evidence from the fall semester has been reassuring, wrote three CDC researchers and a viewpoint piece established online in the Journal of the American Medical Association. There has been little evidence that schools have contributed meaningfully to increased community transmission. Now, do you think it's time for our students to get back into the classrooms? And before that, though, before you answer that one, um, your thoughts on the bullet points regarding the 14 days, 7 days quarantine? Okay. A lot to digest there, yes. so let me sort of <laughs> briefly give you what my thoughts are on that. Mm -hmm. the, the, the CDC guidelines uh, have been changing, as you know, over the course of this pandemic. Yes. So, um, in, in, in short, we sort of make decisions based, it's sort of a guide. We make decisions as physicians based on the individual patient. The 14-day rule is um, it's safe, but what we noticed was that it was very hard for people to quarantine for 14 days. Mm -hmm. uh, and so um, they said usually uh, 10 days, the person is usually rid of the disease. So if they have no... Um, if the patient is not immunocompromised in any way, then 10 days uh, post, uh, we call that the symptom-based discharge date. Yes. Um, that's, that's what the recommendation is. We sort of um, realize that uh, that is a, a safe uh, time to uh, discharge people. Uh, now, if you are immunocompromised, if you are on, if you're a transplant patient, if you're on steroids or you have an immunocompromising position, um, we extend that to 20 days. So, um, and the other thing that we do sometimes is we retest. Yes. So if your test comes back and it's, it's, it's negative, then that means you're no longer infectious and we can let you go even before that 10 day period. Now, you can also be positive 30, 60 days out. And that usually happens if somebody's immunocompromised and we realize that that person is shedding virus. Mm -hmm. It's not active. They're not spreading the disease, but some people are uncomfortable letting them come back. So it's a lot of education we have to do to let folks know that this person, they're no longer infectious. They're now shedding uh, the virus. So it, it's it's a little more complicated than just simply 10, 14 days. We have to look at each patient individually okay. to, to make that determination. 
Um, in terms of the um, um, school spread versus uh, the extended care facilities, uh, extended care facilities were devastated in the early part of this uh, mm-hmm. pandemic. The, the curves were exponential. And we determined that that was because one, they had a lot of comorbid conditions. They were older and more vulnerable. And the staff was probably infecting them by coming in because the staff was most likely uh, asymptomatic and not even knowing that they were uh, positive. So what we did early in this, once we started realizing how vulnerable the patient population was, is we started testing the staff weekly and bi-weekly. Um, and the the rate um, of, of, of COVID infections drastically decreased. Mm-hmm. And then these were also folks that were vaccinated early in the, as, as 1A, 1B um, folks. In, and what I've noticed is the rate of infection has dropped. Um, yes. You know, um, significantly. Um, so that's different from the, the schools. Schools, folks are usually younger. Um, this spread is not usually in the schools, and they can usually be a little bit more resilient. That's providing they don't have any comorbid conditions themselves. So you still have to be uh, vigilant for those specific patients. The problem is the teachers who uh, who may be vulnerable. So I think with the mandate to vaccinate all teachers, mm-hmm. um, that would most likely um, help tremendously. And uh, we can then um, get everybody back to school because, you know, you, it, it, it's, it's more economically, uh, emotionally and socially uh, more beneficial for the students because the damage that's uh, being done by them staying home is, is worse than the disease itself. Some people will will um, <laughs> will will say. Mm-hmm. So I think the economic benefits and and of course the emotional benefits and social benefits um, is is definitely uh, important. And I know President Biden um, he is pushing for schools everyone back to school within one hundred days of of him in office. Mm-hmm. And I, I do want to say one more thing though. Um, this isn't saying that. Um, it's absolutely safe. Um, what we're looking at here is sort of a risk cost benefit analysis. And, you know, it's, it's basically what we're saying is what is the value of a statistical life? Um, and it's sort of the way we do say a mammogram or a colonoscopy. If you, when you recommend that mammograms be done at age 40, that's not saying that a, a, a lady who is 30 cannot have breast cancer. What you're saying is the risk of somebody having breast cancer yes. is much lower. Therefore, it's acceptable. And that's that's a value that society has to set. So we're sort of framing a referendum on risk right now. And um, so, so that's where we are. Uh, so the question is, what are you willing to risk? And, and each society has to then make that determination um, because it's not risk-free, but it's sort of necessary um, to, to move forward. Dr. Leonard Richardson, I want to thank you so much for being at the Blue Table with us tonight. 
I want to thank you on behalf of all Americans and all across the world, especially the Caribbean where you are from, for your service over the years and especially in these trying and tough and turbulent times. You're on the front line and we appreciate your service and we honor you. We salute you. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. This has been a pleasure. Okay. Well, thank you for joining me tonight at the Blue Table in this new format. This is where I am definitely in my element. Uh, Please remember to subscribe to the podcast and also you can share the link so your family and friends can also listen to what we have to offer, not only in the Caribbean, but all across um, the world. We'll be addressing a number of issues daily or nightly, rather. Uh, There is also a support option on here to keep the show going. So your support, just look for the link, support, your support, small or large, will also be greatly appreciated. Be sure to tune in tomorrow night. I promise it will be another great program. Good night and God bless. Mervyn Hanley will inspire. Mervyn Hanley will empower. A voice powerful beyond measure. He will keep us strong under pressure. Touching the hearts and souls of family. You will hear his voice through your tragedy. Television online and